G'day everyone, I'm Luke Tipple. Welcome to The Daily Bite. Today we're diving into the shark vortex with Dr. Greg Scomal and Joe Romero as they hunt for three of the Atlantic Ocean's fiercest and fastest sharks. In the summer off the coast of New England, one of nature's greatest unseen dramas plays out. Here it comes, here it comes! <laughs> when two ocean currents collide, igniting an explosion of sea life that draws thousands of sharks. But come fall, everything changes. Okay, so, Greg, Joe, welcome to The Daily Bite. Thanks so much for your time today. Great to be here. Good to see you, Luke. Same. Um, so, Greg, let's start with you. Perhaps you can explain to people what is the, the vortex and what is it caused by? Well, when we talk about the vortex, we're talking about, you know, really the change of seasons that occurs here off the coast of New England, you know, every year, this cycle that we get that is absolutely amazing. And, you know, think of it as warm water pushing up into the, the Gulf of Maine and carrying with it all kinds of marine life, which includes, you know, a number of species of sharks, which, of course, we're highlighting in this film and, uh, and, and, and gives me as a scientist an incredible opportunity to study these creatures and figure out how they interact, uh, not only with them, with each other, but also with the vortex itself. You know, how do they live in this incredibly dynamic environment that uh, that that just repeats itself year after year after year? So, when you talk about the warmer water pushing up and and it bringing stuff with it, are you talking about animals migrating with it, or is it a nutrient push that's coming up? Like, uh, explain exactly those dynamics to people. Well, what we have here along the eastern seaboard of the United States is this really cool oceanographic feature called the Gulf Stream. You know, and the Gulf Stream is just, as, as you can imagine, you know, it's basically, it's a, it's a hot water river that runs along the east coast of the U.S. and, uh, and passes very, very close to New England. And, uh, and, of course, here in New England, we have, you know, seasonal changes that occur. And our coastal waters, which interact with the Gulf Stream, also warm. And so animals that are, for the most part, restricted to lower latitudes, they, they might overwinter in the Gulf of Mexico or in the Caribbean or off Florida, Georgia, you know, they'll follow this, this great push of warm water, you know, some cases following and, and being in the Gulf Stream, in other cases, just moving along the edges of the Gulf Stream. And, uh, and what happens as you get this explosion of, of hot energy into New England with really cold, productive waters that we have here, you get an amazing amount of production at all trophic levels. So from the plankton all the way up to the big sharks and whales, literally explodes in New England seasonally. And, uh, and it just becomes an incredible, you know, uh, life experience in terms of uh, all kinds of, of action. And, and sharks are part of that action. Yeah. Um, so with that, with that push and the new animals and the, the new prey and everything else, are they pushing animals out or is it is the cold period of time for you guys kind of uh, lacking in abundance of animals? Well, as we settle into New England, a New England winter, you know, a lot of marine life just virtually disappears. And, uh, you know, yes, we have uh, invertebrate species that hang around. We have a few hardy fish species that hang around, um, including one of the sharks that's featured in this film. Um, but for the most part, a lot of animals move south or offshore. And so, you know, we go from having very little life to, to exploding, you know, in the spring and summer. 
So it's obviously a hugely productive time of year for everyone from, you know, fishermen to tourists who are coming for the warmer waters to, you know, filmers and cameramen who are going out to do it. And it's so productive that Joe, you went and bought a boat just to get out there more often. Yeah, we actually went aboard our boat uh, for the whole show. And it's kind of like Greg's, Greg's boat almost because Greg really is, uh, you were driving it, you were doing everything through the whole show, Greg, like trying to get us through it all. Well, I really appreciate it, Joe. <laughs> well, Joe, I remember you called me, uh, I think we spoke, what, about a year ago, right? And you said, oh, I'm getting this boat and it's going to be super sick. And this is the first time I've seen it on the water, like on a film. And it was pretty impressive. Tell me a little bit about it. Um, well, it's actually like me and my wife uh, got like started to think about getting her like a while ago. And then we ended up putting a bunch of different uh, like tools and other things onto it. And then building it out to being like a, like a really built out research vessel and kind of something that could just be more dynamic for scientists and other people as a platform, but also really just kind of like a film studio on the water. And that's really what we built out there. And uh, it has a really aggressive name, but like a really kind of like secretive meaning to it. So <laughs> well, this is a, this is a forum for secrets. What's the secret? Uh, well, I, I named it after my wife, but why, you know, it's like, it's this little tiny, beautiful fish that's able to like, sit amongst all these this ornery animal and be able to like not only do well but thrive so the boat's named after lauren and we kind of just uh we use her all over new england right now and right now the water's starting to build up again and we're at the precipice of the vortex and greg will i mean tell you like this this is very unique to this area we get all the endothermic sharks that exist in the atlantic um, there, are pro there are five of them out of 500 of them. Only the, the only one that doesn't show up doesn't exist in this ocean. So it brings them all here. And the uniqueness of the area being having cold and warm water, and then these animals having the advantage to be able to work in both, um, it just makes the whole area like this playground for these fish. So I'm lucky enough I can sit there and I can follow what Greg's doing, and he can kind of point out directions and stuff, and we get onto them and we find these sharks. and film them in unique ways and get to see these unique animals. So we've been very lucky so far and the boats help us get to all that luck. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's luck and there's also skill and, and water knowledge and, and knowing what you're doing when you're get, getting out there. And um, we've seen the vortex before in the warmer months, but this is the first time you guys have gone out and tried to film and, and get work done in the fall. So I'm curious, how do you go about going out and finding the warmer water in the colder periods of time? Are you kind of driving aimlessly or do you have, you know, some type of tip-offs from fishermen? Uh, well, we have actually uh, what's called SST charts, which are sea surface temperature charts. And we can kind of follow the animals from there. There was a NOAA paper that came out about eddies and how swirling warm water may trap bait life and, and how the sharks actually integrate with that life. And that's more or less what we're looking at you know, how these animals are moving around the coast and what, how they use them and the temperature range of what brings them in, what brings them out. And I feel like we're pretty fine-tuned as to what we know of, of how they move in and how they move out. Greg's had plenty of experience with, with the phantom, the poor beagle, and that shark, I can tell you, is elusive, hard to find, and one of those animals you will only really find here. I mean, here in England, really. There's only this hemisphere of the world where that animal exists and it kind of at a certain time of year it rains here 
And it's kind of just, we think about the summertime and whites and Makos and everything else that comes in here and everything's so super dynamic with the whales that we forget about this like cold king of the ocean that kind of like while we're all at home shoveling snow, these animals are out there just being sharks, you know. It's a cool story. Greg, let's talk about that time of the year. So when it starts getting colder and the warmer water, you know, is receding down south, what type of sharks are left behind? Um, what do they have in common and what species are we seeing? Yeah, it's really, you know, the, the transitional seasons are a lot of fun for us up here. I mean, we know we know it settles in during the summertime, but, you know, as they arrive and as they leave, those transitional periods are really quite dynamic. You know, remember the, the Gulf Stream, which is, you know, here in New England in the summer is about 100 miles offshore. You know, there's, there's eddies that spin off that Gulf Stream and come up onto the shallow continental shelf, which characterizes, you know, the eastern seaboard of the U.S., and and animals remain in those those vortices, uh, those eddies, and they utilize them. And so you could have a, a, an eddy that spins off of the Gulf Stream late in the season, October, November, holding some of these warm water species within it, you know, as it spins out into cold water. And of course, when warm water clashes with cold water, cold water is loaded with nutrients, you get this explosion of life. And these animals, you know, interact with that explosion and they see it as incredible foraging opportunities. So you'll get some cold water species like blue sharks that'll stick around into October. Um, you'll get makos and white sharks that'll stay here into November. Um, and of course, the phantom shark, the four beagle, which Joe references, you know, will, will persist throughout the entire winter time. And it, what's really cool about that shark is that it has such what we call an incredible uh, thermodynamic capacity. You know, it, it's endothermic to the extent that it can keep its body itself warm, even in cold winter, winter temperatures when all the other sharks have to take off, you know? So they'll persist, you know, in the winter time throughout the year in some of the coldest waters that you'd ever anticipate seeing sharks in. And, uh, and it's that time of year that we really want to study them because, you know, they're doing things that other animals can't do. Hmm. So if the endothermic sharks are sticking around when the cold-blooded sharks have to move away with the, with the warmer water, does that mean there's more prey for them or does it become more competitive in the colder time of year? Well, it's a, good, it's a great question. You know, it, it, I, I think it's less competitive because it gives them a bit of a, an advantage. You know, they're able to stick around longer and exploit, you know, three-dimensional space in, in better ways than some of the cold-blooded sharks, the ectothermic sharks. You know, if we tend to think about, you know, cold water in a horizontal plane, but keep in mind, these animals live in a three-dimensional space. So we got to think about temperature changes with depth as well. So think about these endothermic sharks being able to not only go north, south, east, and west, but from the top down to depths as great as, you know, two, 3,000 feet. You know, that's cold water down there. And they could stay a little bit longer. They could exploit some of those food resources that their competition can't handle. Well, as we'll see in the show, the, uh, the action gets pretty fierce during that time of year. Let's check out one of those clips. All right, divers are in. On Joe's last dive in the spring vortex, he caught a large male mako exerting his dominance. Oh my God, what just bit the other one? Attacking one of its own kind. The mako sharks are very territorial and they seem very agitated and aggressive towards each other when they come together. It was the first time this behavior had ever been filmed. 
So Joe, you spent a ton of time out there. It's pretty rare to see a Mako attacking one of its own. Walk me through that moment. What was going on? What caused that to happen, do you think? Um, <clears throat> well, it's not rare to see them be aggressive towards each other. These animals are pretty territorial. I mean, we see it with white sharks where they kind of seem to push each other off. It's just those moments where these animals actually clash. But it raises a lot of questions like the Mako that bit the other Mako was uh, a male Mako and the, other, the one that he bit was a female. So I asked the question, like, what was that for? Was that aggressive? Get off my bait. Is this kind of like one of those areas where, you know, the dynamic is where there's actual food sources, will males and females come together and interact with each other in certain ways? No one can be really sure. I mean, you look at it and you know that it's just unique because these two animals just ended up coming close with each other. Something that just its whole life is keeping an eye on its space keeping other things out of that zone and making sure that it stays safe. That when something gets within it, it's kind of a big deal. And they were both kind of focused on that prey source. So as the female approached, the male grabbed her. But I noticed the male started moving over to her gills. And that raised the question, was this truly aggression? Or was this something else? You know, like, I don't know. Seems like there's, there's all these theories about like mako sharks maybe being able to like mate and really latch onto the side of the gill so the male may be able to breathe through the mouth of the female. I mean, Greg be able to talk more about this. But from what I see in the videos, it kind of like raised more questions than it answered about them. I mean, I've seen them be aggressive with each other quite a bit. But to see them actually grab each other, that's, that's a total different story. I mean, Greg, you've told me stories about uh, Makos found inside of other Makos. So it, it's like, it seems to me like these larger ones may eat smaller ones at times, whatever opportunity, I don't know if they're living or, but they, I have seen them chase around. I have seen them try to kill smaller ones. So, you know, it, the, the, the questions are up, you know, Greg probably has more answers to this than I do, but it raised questions for me. Well, I'd love to hear Greg's thought on that. Um, that seems fascinating. The idea that they could latch onto gills and perhaps breathe through the female's mouth. Like what's the theory behind that? Well, that's, yeah, that's, I mean, it's interesting. It, you know, we, we, as scientists, we see scarring patterns on sharks, uh, many, many different species, including whites and makos and others. And, and we try to figure out, okay, where'd you get that? You know, why did that happen? Is it a, an attempted mating? Is it uh, some territorial competition? You know, this, these kinds of social interactions uh, are really tough to actually observe. And what Joe captured with that video footage is some of actual direct observations of a social interaction or some kind of attempting attempted predation. We don't know. And we probably won't know from this that single clip. But the more Joes that are out there getting these kinds of little tidbits of information that you're sharing with scientists, the more we try to piece it together and figure out exactly what's going on. You know, is this strictly social? Is it territorial in some capacity? Or is that shark just basically saying, hey, you know, I'm an open ocean predator and you're a potential prey item and I'm gonna bite you. You know, we'll never know that. Um, but I really appreciate him. We're seeing more and more of these clips come in the more time that the Joes in the world spend underwater. And, uh, and I tell you, I really appreciate it, even though, as Joe suggested, it raises more questions than it provides answers. Yeah. Well, Joe, you're spending a lot of time out there. Um, in some of the other Daily Bite episodes, we've been talking about um, the sexes of sharks and, and where they're hanging out. And there's, there's research to show that the males of some species are hanging out deeper than the females and there's a bit of segregation going on. Um, are you seeing Makos of different sexes mixing fairly regularly or do you see them separated? 
Um, it's hard to say because honestly, <clears throat> I think the more we spend time with sharks, just, it just seemed like in the beginning, there was a lot of things where I felt like there were a lot of answers coming in. And then after five years, there were more questions. Now it kind of feels like after 10 years, I may not know anything. You know, where, where you sit there and you look at one population, you really study it, and then you go to the Pacific and the exact same fish in the exact same temperature is acting completely different and doing things that the other ones don't do. There's uh, a mentor of both of us named Wes Pratt who, you know, had a lot of theories of like how male and female blue sharks move around the coast and stuff. What we see here is makos of female and male both intermingled, but a lot of them are somewhat juvenile, except for off the coast of the Gulf, where it seems like larger females seem to be. This is like a shallow, almost nesting ground for like smaller makos, from what I can gather. There's no, you know, book evidence to say this, you know, this is just my personal observations. But, and the male blue sharks are like the only sharks we really see for blue sharks. We rarely see a female, I've seen about eight or nine of them out of the 12 years that I've been out there. Uh, one of them was <clears throat> one that we actually tagged Greg. Uh, one was another one that we had two of them last season that we filmed that had like bite marks all over and fresh bite marks that were just, just recently done. So there definitely seems to be some drive or some segregation with large populations of males during at least this time of seasonality where they seem aggressive enough to the females where they separate. And there have been females found close to shore at deep levels. I found them at sites where I don't see any other sharks, like they seemingly know that area is safe. And then peculiarly enough, I see in England, they had a, a whale carcass that they had and they were showing all these blue sharks eating it. And a producer friend of mine was showing me the footage and every single shark was female. Every single shark was female. Every single shark over here was male. And it theorizes to me that, you know, possibly, there's this drive in the migration of males pushing females. You know, they could, it, it's something to look into. I mean, they come up with new stuff with blue sharks every year where it's like, we know kind of like migration patterns. It's really knowing like behavioral patterns that are the little nuances that at least excite me as a filmmaker and excite me as a, you know, a person that's very involved in science. But, you know, it, it's something where Greg talks about. We bring the information to him. We sit there and have lunches and talk about it all the time. Like, what shark nerdiness we have in us and what we see and what we don't kind of come up with little theories that, you know, lead to experiments that these guys do. And then they come up with scientific papers that say it to the world, but it all starts like this little sparks of little knowledge that you see and you kind of gather through everything. And like, you know, you go all over the place and do the same stuff. You see some stuff just being out there. And, you know, if there's one thing to people, you know, saying that if a tree falls in the forest and no one's here, does it make a noise? there's enough people out there, you'll hear it, you know, so you just got to be out there to get it. Well, in the show, you talk about uh, makos being the first endotherms that leave the vortex. Um, can you explain that to us? Um, they're the, they seem to be the most warm, tolerant ones to the vortex. There was a period, though, during the shooting, we never captured on camera because we just like woke up during it. And we had a very, very large mako and really cold temperature like temperatures that made no sense at all like some lost fish and Craig you and I've seen like some lost fish before where they make no sense there they end up sometimes on beaches sometimes just reported great whites makos threshers you know all these animals seem to seemingly get trapped or fall outside of that stuff so it goes back to where this 
encampment of how these vortices work, which are just circles of like warm water. If you've ever poured cream into a coffee and watched how it swirls, that's what we're talking about. That trapped warm water around the swirl, how it encloses. And that goes back and forth on both levels as this currents fight. So it's like waging war between these two different fronts, but right there at that front, it's just explosion of life there. So we get pretty lucky at seeing those kind of small little encounters and stuff. Well, it's obviously a, a very dynamic environment, but Greg, perhaps you can give us uh, kind of an overall view of uh, endothermy, you know, the species that are, you know, that are in that group that you guys are seeing and kind of the, the hierarchy for when they tend to leave the vortex. Yeah, sure. I mean, endothermy is just a, you know, a highly evolved attribute that is incredibly rare in the fish world. Um, there's only other, one other group of fishes, and that's the, the highly derived tunas, the tuna fishes that have uh, endothermy, that and the lambdid sharks. And then when we talk about the lambdid sharks, we're talking about the members of the species lambdidae. And as Joe indicated, we get a, a, many of them here right off the coast of the uh, east coast of the U.S. and up in New England, you know, seasonally. And that includes, you know, the white shark, the mako, you know, and the poor beagle shark, as well as the longfin mako which is a really poorly studied deep water species that would really be an amazing fish for us to encounter. And uh, it is incredibly rare. Um, but all those species occur here off the coast of New England, again, seasonally. And, uh, and as I said earlier, the one that sticks around through the winter and well into the winter is, is the four beagle shark. And that's the one that that's, that's typically is thought to have the highest endothermic capacity. It means it can raise its body temperature uh, in really cold water. And, uh, and, and the way these animals do it, and I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, is, but they're able to, you know, we all generate heat, including animals that live in the ocean. And many species, most species of fish will lose that heat, you know, at the gills. But the way makos and, and their relatives retain their heat is they have very, very complex circulatory system that allows warm, warm heat that's generated by the body that's passing in the blood to go through this net of vessels that exchange the heat with blood that's going into the body. So the heat in essence is retained within the body. They also have the capacity to heat their eyes, their brain, as well as some of their major organs. And so if you can raise your body temperature, of course, it allows you to exploit different areas, different niches that might be colder and not available to species of sharks that are ectothermic. And so uh, when we look at, you know, the capacity of these animals to do that, as Joe indicated, makos appear to be the first to leave as things begin to cool down. He also said that maybe some of the larger makos might stick around, and we would expect that because it's thought to be that bigger fish, like big coolers, can retain heat a lot better than smaller fish. So the smaller makos will take off, you know, and what will follow the makos is, is the white sharks, and the white sharks might stick around as late as you know early to mid-december and again those are the larger individuals before they begin to take off and they'll begin you know moving offshore or down south off the southeastern united states like the makos will and as i've said a couple of times the poor beagles will, will stick around well into winter you know they'll stay in the gulf of maine they'll move as far south perhaps as north carolina we tagged some poor beagles that will move south um, but they will stay in those colder areas and they can tolerate the cold water. And that allows them to basically have, you know, that, that environment to themselves in terms of foraging opportunities.
Um, so speaking of feeding opportunities, uh, you, you made a comment that I found pretty fascinating that white sharks might be using the vortex as a way of sort of maturing and scaling up their feeding appetite and going after different prey. Could you explain that to me? Yeah, I mean, white sharks are a really amazing animal that we've spent a lot of time with the last several years. And, you know, and there's, you know, Joe said this earlier, that the more we study them, the more questions we seem to have. Um, and it's a pretty well-studied species on a global scale. But when we look at the white shark, you know, moving up into New England in the summertime, you know, uh, it's, it's really quite fascinating. The smaller white sharks, they go through a diet shift. You know, so smaller white sharks less than you know, three meters or nine, 10 feet long. Uh, we'll focus primarily on, on schooling fish, fish that live on or close to the bottom, maybe invertebrates like squid. Um, but as they get bigger, they're, they go through this kind of pubescent phase where their body shape changes. They get more muscular, they get stronger, their jaw musculature changes, and even the shape of their tooth changes from something really sharply pointed to a really, uh, a, um, a triangular serrated cutting tool, which is really well adapted for, for killing big prey. And it's at this phase in their life that they start augmenting their diet with scavenging whale carcasses and eating the blubber off whales to, to attacking and killing seals or in other parts of the world, sea lions. They'll also attack and kill dolphins and porpoises. And so um, that's a really cool time because up here in the vortex in New England, We've got seals, we've got dolphins, we've got porpoises, and we've got lots of whales. So in essence, the vortex really offers these, the white shark all kinds of really rich feeding opportunities. Well, you guys are out there looking for those types of feeding opportunities, and with all these hundreds and thousands of hours on the water, they're always hoping for something spectacular, and this trip paid off with a pretty spectacular predation. These sharks come here all the time, cold weather. Joe, we got a predation right there! Predation! On a starboard, two o'clock. He's got it. He's got it in his mouth. Dude, that happened so fast, man. The shark just was right on it. I don't know. Kind of happened so fast. I, I didn't really get a good look at it. It looked like from the dorsal fin, maybe a 10, 12 foot subadult. I wouldn't be surprised if that shark's getting its first taste of seal before it's too cold to hang out here anymore. So that that was pretty amazing, Greg. How rare is it to see predations out there? Well, you know, we are on the water quite a bit, and um, we've got, for the most part, thousands of seals with hundreds of white sharks, and then one would anticipate that every day I'm going to see a white shark attack and kill a seal, but that is not the case. We actually don't get to see it very often. I think in the last 10 years, I've probably seen it less than 20 times, so this one day we're out on the boat, you know, Joe and I, you know, Boom, that happens. This is the luck that Romero brings to the table. That's why I like to work with him. You know, you're with Joe, you're going to see something cool and exciting. And, and that day we saw a white shark attack and kill uh, and go after uh, a gray seal. And, and to see this is to really appreciate the speed, the power, the strength, and, and the amazing aspects of white sharks. You know, how they go about their business doing what they need to do, and that's feed. Well, when you guys saw that predation, Joe, you mentioned that you thought it, I think you said you wouldn't be surprised if it was a sub-adult getting its first taste of seal. What led you to that conclusion? Uh, I mean, it's just kind of the ever-growing feeling of that time constraint. Uh, it didn't look like a really large 
super large white shark and it was pretty cold out and those animals are starting to drive as greg says from size limits from small to large and judging by the size of the animal it was just like at least it felt like that you know there was nothing to indicate to me besides it was a smaller animal and i was like it's definitely on its way out of here and it's like it may be the first one it ever caught who knows yeah well you, you talk about the um the notion that their time is limited at certain times. Are you seeing the season for these sharks being a bit longer or perhaps shorter or affected by things like global warming? Like is the vortex lasting longer, for example? Definitely. To me, I see that. I don't know if Greg, if you're seeing that, but I see some definite temperature change. Could I, I kind of attribute it to global warming because, you know, I mean, we all argue about it back and forth, but I think there's no real know argument within the science community that something's happening here and it definitely seems to be extending and there's a period in the center now almost like an eye in the storm where it gets to be so warm that we're seeing animals like tiger sharks and black tip sharks and you know animals that you would relatively associate at least in the gulf stream offshore way offshore or down south not so close to inshore new england waters so that shows an encroachment of very warm water and it's been a swing up. I mean, I've only, you know, you have 10, 12 years out there. It doesn't really show a global, you know, trend, but it definitely seems to be a swing up in the last times. Yeah. Greg, can you elaborate on that? What, um, what's the data showing us in terms of changes over seasons and years and perhaps decades? Yeah, it's, uh, it's no doubt that we're seeing, you know, climate change here in New England. As a matter of fact, the Gulf of Maine is warming at a rate higher than almost any place else on Earth. And, and, the, and the Gulf of Maine, is, as I've alluded to throughout this conversation, you know, the home of the vortex is where all this life explodes every year. And so as that warms, we're going to see a change. And we are beginning to see a change in the composition of the species that occur here. Now, what's really fascinating is you know, what we're gonna see in terms of the endothermic sharks, because remember, they can have a very, very broad temperature tolerance. They're, the range in which they inhabit is very different or much broader than with some of the ectothermic species. So the questions we have is, you know, how much will climate change impact these endothermic sharks versus these ectothermic sharks? And for me, what I wanna be watching is the prey base you know what what is the prey doing you know what are the seals going to do what's the bluefish which makos love what are they going to do what are these other species going to do in response to, to climate change and how are these top predators going to get access to them and are they going are they going to follow them as they move farther farther north into these higher latitudes and i'm also and what's going to happen with these vortices you know what's going to happen with the vortex are they going to be far shorter in duration you know what are they going to be clashing into who knows who knows but you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's an oceanographer's, you know, you know, this is a dream in terms of being able to study what, what's going on. And, and I love the fact that we work closely now with oceanographers to get a sense of how that's impacting, you know, these species. Well, I guess that begs the question of what's driving the migrations, because we're talking about seasonal annual events. So is it, is it your thought that the migration is driven by prey availability and then following the prey where it's going, or is it being driven by the, the temperature of the waters that they like to live in? Well, you know, it's, it's, a bit of, it's a bit of all of the above, and it's also driven in part by, and, and Joe alluded to this, in terms of blue sharks, you know, mating opportunities. You know, you've got, you know, an explosion in life that, that, that occurs here in the summertime that leads to, you know, the entire food web 
you know, growing. And that for a shark, for a top predator, which is what these sharks are, you know, those are opportunities that should be taken advantage of. You know, they have the capacity to migrate great distances, and that's exactly what they do. They follow this warm water, and knowing very well there's going to be great feeding opportunities. But those feeding opportunities might also cascade into reproductive opportunities. You know, <laughs> hey, we're all hanging out in this great restaurant. We're having a great time. We all happen to be mature animals, boys and girls. Let's see what happens at that point. And and in the case of the blue sharks, we know that there's some mating that's going on. It's been you know demonstrated in a couple of papers that have been written. I think in terms of some of these lamnids, we don't know, um, but we really need to find out. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, the Gulf of Maine is warming at a rate higher than anywhere else on Earth. Um, obviously, that's probably not because there's more sun shining on Maine. Uh, what what is causing it to warm more than anywhere else? Yeah, I mean, basically, it's climate change, right? We're seeing this this pattern of global warming as you know temperatures rise at higher latitudes, and in the Gulf of Maine, I know it's wide open to the Atlantic, but if you really look at the topography, the depths in the Gulf of Maine, it almost acts a little bit, you know, to some extent like a like an enclosed body of water. And as a result, it will warm at a higher rate than the open Atlantic will. And that's exactly what's going on. Yeah, so it's able to trap sort of more of that warmer water that's coming in and it just sort of builds and builds on itself, right? So, Joe, once we've seen the Makos and the Great Whites move on and move south, we're left for the Poor Beagle. Uh, I know that they're a ghost shark and really elusive, but are they? would you consider them kind of a year-round resident of the area? They are, and... Honestly, they they seem to kind of like occupy a lot of different areas along that the New England coast. It's just, it's one of those sharks. It's like, it may be, you know, it, we call it the ghost and the phantom, but that's only relative to being able to find it. Like animals so in tune to knowing when you're around, what you're doing. And, and we see that with basically the DNA pool of the animals. You pull out the animals that are bold and the animals that are like, you know, get there first and you're left with the meek and the weak, you know, animals that don't want to show themselves. So that starts to like show in the animal's behavior. A lot of the animals seem to know, or it may be just something through time that they know what people are and they know how to stay away from us. But it seems like that shark knows what we are and seems to know every single time someone touches the water with a lens. So like... It's very smart. It seems to escape a camera at all seemingly. It looks like the ring, just a little blur of tape, and there was a shark there. But that shark seems to be very difficult. Uh, I, I mean, we're getting stuff of them now, and we're seeing footage of them now, but it's just, it's still a, one of those sharks that's dastardly at avoiding us. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys definitely went on a mission on this trip. And you headed up north on the hunch that there might be some bigger poor beagles up north. I mean, it was snowing. The conditions looked horrendous up there. What made you think that they'd be up there that far? Uh, well, we know they were pushing up that far. Uh, James had tagged a few that were like pinging in areas where we started to track them down. But it seems like those animals were moving at such a rate that they were jumping all over the place and following the food sources. And it was really kind of following the food sources. And not only them but seeing how they were reacting. So sometimes you just walk into a place and you can tell everybody's nervous. Something's going on there. It's kind of what it was. 
we'd walk over to these food sources, like Greg says, and you look at them and you can look at a pile of seals or a pile of fish and be like, they're acting relaxed. Might not be anything here. If they're acting tense, maybe a reason. So you see behavior in those prey items and eventually that sort of trickles down to what you sort of sense of the area. And the poor beagle is one of those animals where it seems like we're starting to be like, you know, the old trail riders where we have to like hunt and like look at tracks and what direction and how north they move. It's not so simple as just putting bait in the water and expecting to trick an animal. It's, they're smart. They know what we, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard, it's hard animal to get. <laughs> <laughs> well, the efforts heading north and into the snow and the, the horrible cold paid off because they managed to capture one of the largest poor beagles that they've seen. Let's listen to the clip. Poor beagles are all muscle. The 500 pound shark easily slips their grasp. Reload. I got it over a head. So, Joe, you captured a, about a 10-foot pregnant female. Is that right? She was huge. I mean, we got to be able to, like, measure her, but it was, like, slight. I've personally never seen one that large. I was uh, there when um, – I remember the state record a few years ago when they caught one, and it was, like, 300 and something pounds, and this thing definitely looked larger. But it could be time of year. It could be anything to do with that. And uh, figuring out by her size – there was more to the story than just, you know, she's long, you know, it was like her body weight and her girth had a lot more story there. Well, tell me about that discovery you guys made because you're out there ready to look for pups. So what did you find? Um, well, one of the biggest reasons is like, I, we were out there to, yeah, basically find out the connection between, we were the first Vortex show, we found where the, the, the pupping grounds were for these sharks. Then we wanted to find out the mothers, where they were. And then really James was really interested in finding out the connection between those two and why that really was putting itself together. So we had to like sit there and, and it raised a lot of questions for possibly more stuff to be done out there because we now know that there's females here that are pregnant. We sonogrammed one for the first time ever in history in the wild. We ended up putting a fin mount camera on it, seeing how it like judged the water. The water got so cold that you know, it registered everything on the cameras, everything else, but we were having camera troubles, battery troubles with the freezing cold water. This animal was taking this thing into like territories where we were not ready for. And uh, we made some discoveries as far as like, you know, where the big females are, where the babies are, where the pregnant females are. Now we're trying to figure out like, what's the connection? If all this is going on here, do they really migrate across overseas, do all this stuff? And as Greg has indicated, it seems like they just, they, they more or less keep in the New England area. Now, do those populations intermingle overseas? That's other questions, you know, and some species, male sharks travel thousands of miles while females will travel hundreds. That could be more to spread out the, the DNA. I mean, Greg would definitely speak more on this than, than I can, being that. <laughs> But I, it, mine's based mostly on observation and what these guys are telling me that this area holds a bigger story here for the poor beagle than, than just like they come here at certain times of year and, and do stuff and then leave. 
they may be spending most of their lives and this may be a propagating ground in like the Gulf of Maine, like we're talking about this critical area where these animals that don't exist anywhere else may not be able to survive, especially if the temperature gives up and that nursing area disappears. And like Greg also indicated, the depth there is not enough to indicate 5,000 feet of depth. So these animals can go and stay there and get into cold water. So what happens to them once that water warms too much? It's something to look at. Well, I, th I think that's a great question, uh, Greg. What happens when the water warms up too much? Uh, do the poor beagles move further north? Are they moving away or do they adapt? Yeah, that's, that's a question I, I don't know um, the answer to, and I don't think anyone does. So, you know, and, and certainly none of us want climate change to, to happen because it's going to be a very disruptive. But it'll be very interesting to see what these endothermic species do. You know, um, it'll probably change their latitudinal distribution to some extent because that seems to be the most common, uh, you know, effect of what happens with climate change with many species of fish. So will they will they go even further north, which would allow them opportunities to exploit, uh, you know, other species that are moving that way as well, you know, so their prey base will keep moving north. Um, but how will it impact, and Joe, Joe talks about this a little bit, how will, will it impact their, their basic natural history? You know, one of the things we're always trying to find out, and James has done a great job teasing out some of this with poor beagles is, you want to know where the males and females are getting together. You want to know where females are giving birth to their young. You want to know what that gestation period is. You know this, Luke, right? You, you want to know this information so that you can help protect the species and conserve it at sustainable levels. And so the more we know about those basic life history attributes, the better you know, prepared we are or the most more effective we'll be at protecting the population as a whole, you know, and, and Joe talks about maybe they stay in the Western Atlantic. And I think that probably is the case based on our tagging data. So they're not mis mixing with West, the Eastern Atlantic population. So we have to manage that population very discreetly, you know, and now we've got this wrench being thrown in the works with climate change. And we've barely figured out where these things are normally happening. And we got to try to project where they might happen 10, 15, 20, 50 years from now. Um, so you know, uh, unfortunately, I don't have a great answer to that question, but, uh, you know, I think the people that take over after Joe and I retire, hopefully we'll be able to answer some of them, you know, in the years to come. Yeah. Um, so is, uh, is the data right now, tagging data and stuff, is that showing that the poor beagles tend to stay at least somewhat in the area rather than migrating massive distances like the Makos and Whites? Yeah, you know, they, they cover a fairly broad area in the, in the northern latitudes. You know, so they'll go up to Newfoundland, they'll go, uh, you know, out east, Grand Banks, they'll be in the Gulf of Maine, even expand south to as far south as North Carolina. So they will cover a broad area, but they'll stay in those cooler latitudes. And, um, uh, and, th and that, that really is a testament to their ability to regulate their body temperature. So, Joe, what's next for the Vortex? What are you guys going out to do next? Right now, we're actually heading offshore and we're doing stuff out near the Gulf Stream and we may be looking for other phantoms and other things that may be around out there. I mean, it, there's a lot to explore around the area and now that we've kind of gone within it and know the epicenter, it's kind of like radiating out and seeing a lot of exciting stuff, Luke. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the horizon, a lot of stuff that, you know, I'm sure Greg is on to right now that is all keeping all of us hush-hush till next season, you know? Well, yeah, because we're, we're basically at the beginning of your season now, right? Yeah. 
And is uh is the whole like COVID thing is that affecting you guys getting out or do you just go out and do the work? Uh, we're keeping pretty quarantined. We have like a little kind of like closed in group here of just a few people, so we're able to do our stuff. And we've all been like had the community and tested, so we just we just have our like you know we follow the procedures and we're doing the best we can. It's definitely not a free for all with everybody, but you know I know Greg's got the same sort of outfit with him, a very tight knit team of people that stay all close together, and they're not. You know, we're not taking a lot of risks because, you know, the smallest little thing can affect the entire season. It can affect a lot of people. So even as it starts to relax, I think it's always smart within boats where we can't get within six feet. We we can't really help six feet of distance. So with that, it's always a concern. It definitely raised a lot of stuff. But, you know, you adapt like the sharks and you try to get out there as much as you can. You do our stuff and we're hunting them as much as they're hunting fish. You know, I like that. Uh, Greg, what's on the cards for this season? What are you hoping to to do or find or tag? Well, yeah, we um, you know, you mentioned COVID. Obviously, we're a little bit delayed with our field work. Um, we put out a lot of acoustic receivers for for the tagged white sharks we've got, which numbers well over two hundred now, and so it's been slow to get them out. So I'm hoping over the next two three days we get the, the rest of those out, and then we're going to start our our white shark work. Um, probably, you know, mid July. And, um, again, like Joe, we're going to use a very tight, small team. We're going to try to social distance on a boat as best we can. And, uh, we're, we're getting a bunch of different technologies out, uh, this year. You know, we've got not only live, uh, receivers, but we've got a, um, a virtual positioning system where to look at fine scale movements of white sharks around swimming beaches. We've got the, the camera tags that Joe's been using as well. We got a number of those. We got some really cool aerial technology. So I'm excited to get out because it's been a really long winter and spring, you know, sitting sitting at home. I think everyone's feeling that. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the sort of the live tracking notion, I know that that's kind of gotten into sort of the public zeitgeist as perhaps, you know, the solve to, to white shark things. Could you tell me a little bit about where that technology actually is? Well, we're using, there's a couple different live technologies now. Um, as you know, there's uh, there's satellite link technology where if a sh- you know you strap a tag to a shark's fin, if it comes to the surface, it'll transmit to a uh, to a satellite, and then you get that position within a couple of hours, and you can put that out on some platform. Like you know, I work closely with the Animal Telemetry Network, for example, and we can put those data. You could follow our white sharks on that website, and that's great. You know, one of the things we're doing with white sharks around Cape Cod, where they're, which is a fairly recent aggregation site is we're putting a, an acoustic buoy out that will transmit a warning to a lifeguard right on the beach within seconds of picking up one of our tagged sharks. And so that allows lifeguards to get a sense of how frequently white sharks are in the area and what kind of steps they can take in order to enhance public safety. And that's you know all through cell phone systems. And that data will also, those data will also go up on the Sharktivity app, uh, which the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy you know, maintains. So getting the information out there uh, for public safety purposes, but also just to educate the public is, is something we're all trying to do a little bit better. As, as someone who's like definitely on the ground making all that stuff happen, are you seeing much of a change in public perception towards the presence of white sharks? Are they getting excited about it now? Are they more scared about it? What, what do you see changing? Well, you know, for me, you know, personally, I've, I've done this for over 30 years and, um, you know, I've been pretty fortunate, an interesting time to live because the technology has exploded over that time period. And Joe can attest to that. You too as well, Luke. Um, 
And so public attitudes when I was, uh, you know, a young guy like you, Luke, uh, were basically the only good shark is a dead shark. But I've been able to see that the attitude towards sharks really change. And it's because of, you know, media outlets like Discovery Channel with Shark Week and, and guys like Joe who are bringing sharks into our homes and social media outlets and conservation groups and scientists who are willing to share their data and guys like you, Luke, who are going out and translating those data into, you know, information that the public can digest. It raises the respect for these animals, and with that respect comes this desire to conserve. And I've really seen a nice change in attitudes over the course of my career. That's fantastic to hear. Um, before we sign off from the Daily Bite here, is there anything you guys would like to plug? Any any exciting projects coming up? Greg, I'll let you plug your stuff first. <laughs> no, I mean we're just we're just cooking away on our white shark work with the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy and. Um, and uh, working with the Animal Telemetry Network and, and really uh, um, you know, trying to educate the public and, and do the research needed to, to learn more about these animals. But you know, I appreciate the opportunity the Discovery Channel and, and you've given me, Luke, here today to share this information and get it out there to the public. That's right. Joe, what do you got for us? Um, I, too, also appreciate <laughs> Discovery Channel for letting us get out there and doing all the stuff we have. Uh, <clears throat> this year, I'll be going out on the warfish, and my team will be looking for sharks all throughout the New England coast and studying a few different things and filming a, a couple of different projects. You can follow us on 333 Productions on Instagram, on Facebook, and uh, myself and everybody on the team are on there as well. And we'll be doing a lot of stuff. So uh, that's pretty much it, besides new stuff coming out on Shark Week next year. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always good to see. The Shark Vortex shows are always like fascinating to me and you guys definitely killed it with this one so thank you for that uh dr greg scomel joe romero thanks so much for your time today really appreciate you stopping by the daily bite for everyone else out there happy shark week <laughs>